All right, good morning to everyone and welcome to The Well here at STSA. Great to see so many people here today. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you're joining us in the middle of a series. It's called First in Faith. We're on part three of six. So if you missed any of the two first parts, we're basically talking about the life of a guy named Abraham. If you missed any of the two first parts, make sure you go online to stsa.church, click on The Well, and you can get caught up in the first two parts. But in case you didn't, you missed those first two parts. Let me get you caught up real quick and let you know where we are in the story. Because if you don't understand the context of where we are, you're going to struggle to get to, to today's message. We started off by talking about this guy named Abraham, who you've heard about many, many, many times as the father of many nations. Abraham, one of the most famous guys in all the scriptures. In fact, Jesus only said about himself that he's the son of three people. He's the son of the father, he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. So that puts Abraham in pretty good category right there when Jesus said, I'm son of Abraham. Abraham, the series is called First in Faith because Abraham was the first. The first as far as the greatest, he's known as he did things, acts of faith, which nobody else has ever done, but also first in terms of first because he was the first one. And what made his faith so great was he didn't have the stories that we have to rely on. Like we have the story of Abraham, so we say God who came through for Abraham can come through for me. But he didn't have the story of Abraham. He is the story of Abraham. There was no one who was before Abraham. God appears to Abraham out of the blue and says, Abraham, I have chosen you to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. And you would say, great, that's exactly what I want for God to say to me. Well, we saw that when God says, I want to bless, there's a command that goes with it. And the command is, I need you to be separate. All right, and the call to blessing is actually a call to separation. And that was what we talked about in the first week, how God said to Abraham, I wanna give you the most, but I need you to separate from your land, from your country, from your comfort zone. I need you to be separate. Separate is the same word as holy, set apart. Last week we saw that Abraham, who is no doubt a hero of faith, but he was not perfect. We saw that Abraham made some mistakes. And we saw that Abraham's obedience to God in the beginning was 90%. And parents, y'all get this one. What do we tell our kids? That 90% obedience equals disobedience or 10% failure, okay? No, failure, just failure, okay? If you obey, like, if you obey 90% of the directions to get to your home today, you will be homeless, okay? You have to obey 100% to get to your actual room and get to your bed. So Abraham obeyed 90%. He did not fully separate. He left his country, but he took his father with him and his dad did not want him to take his father because father was an idol worshiper. Abraham makes a stop in a city called Haran, and he stops there for 15 years. 15 years, no voice of God, no blessing from God, no nothing. Why? Because he didn't obey God. He took his father and, his, and the command was, leave your father and leave your city and go to the land. He made this pit stop in Haran because his dad said, it's nice here, let's hang out here. 15 years of pause. The story picks up again when Terah, the father, dies. And now Abraham obeys 100%. He gets to the land that God commanded him. What does he find in the land? He finds a famine, which is not what you're looking for. When you go to the restaurant, you're not looking for them to say no food, okay? So when you're going to the land of milk and honey, you're expecting milk and honey. You're expecting the blessing of God and the blessing of God landed him in a place where there's no food, no water and nothing on the horizon. Abraham panics. He doesn't stop doubting God, but he kind of thinks, okay, God, I'm gonna give you a hand, because you promised this, and I know you're gonna come through, so I'm gonna kind of give you a hand. It's actually the same thing he does later on with the whole Ishmael situation, which is God made this promise, 
that he's going to bless me, and this is the land I'm going to make my home, but there's nothing here. He panics, takes his wife, goes to Egypt, and gets help from Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, this is when the mistake really compounds itself, because he tells his lovely wife, sweetheart, you are so beautiful. Let me tell you how beautiful you are, sweetheart. You're the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world, and no eye, man keep their eyes off of you. So we're going to tell everyone that you're my sister, so they don't kill me. So they take you, and they don't kill me, so what are you going to say? You're my sister. And Sarah, obedience of Sarah, we don't really talk about Sarah too much, but talk about obedience of Sarah, like Sarah trusted in God more than her husband, but she did it. But the mistake there was Abraham, again, got ahead of God and reacted in fear versus relied on faith. But like we saw last week, even though our hero Abraham made mistake after mistake after mistake, we saw that God, this is our theme from last week, God is faithful even when we are faithless. Okay, and what we talked about is how a father, when he sees his kid about to destroy his life, doesn't yell at him, doesn't lecture him, he helps him. And that's exactly what God did because there's no person who's too far gone for God. Again, back to the GPS example. There's no GPS out there that says, sorry, too many wrong turns, can't help you. Go, go find someone else. I tried, I give up on you. If the GPS wouldn't give up on us, why would we think our father in heaven would give up on us? As long as we are willing to be obedient and come back to God, he's always ready to bless us and to guide us. And that's what we saw last week. God intervenes in the story. Abraham made this whole mess of the situation. God says, don't worry, I got you. He steps in, scares Pharaoh away with some plagues, and he frees up Sarah. He takes them both back to their land, and they actually leave with parting gifts. So they end the story better off than they started. That's the faithfulness of God, even when we are faithless. That's what we talked about the past two weeks. That was Genesis 12. Okay, now we're gonna to start to pick up the story a little bit quickly. We're gonna to get to Genesis 15 today, and we're gonna kind of stop there. We'll talk about that. But I wanna talk about Genesis 13 and 14 real quick, again, just to get the context. Abraham does this Egypt mess, and he goes back to his land. And on his way back to his land, he has more stuff, like I said. And he has so much stuff that now the stuff actually becomes a problem between him and his nephew, who is Lot. We'll pick up the story here in Genesis 13. It says, Lot, who also went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. They made out, so, they made out like bandits from Pharaoh. They had so much stuff the land wouldn't accommodate. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, he learned his lesson from before. He's going to trust in God. Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, I will go to the left. Now, again, this is not what we want to talk about today, but I just can't pass by this real quick right here without saying that Abraham learned a very important lesson in chapter 12, which is, you know what? I tried it my way, got me in all kinds of problems. So what Abraham did here is kind of crazy. It goes against all the, 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 the rules of how families operate. Abraham is the star. Lot is the cameo or the supporting actor. Like Abraham got the promise. Lot is just along for the ride. Abraham's the uncle. Lot is the nephew. It should be Abraham says, look, buddy, you were lucky to make it this far with me. Now you're going to go over there and I'm going to go over there. But that's not what Abraham says. Abraham learned the lesson. He said, I would rather put my hands in the life of God and let God choose for me because God will always choose better than I will choose. Important lesson. 
God will always choose better for you than you can choose for yourself. And that's what Abraham said. So he says to Lot, you stand, you look north, south, east, west. You choose whatever you want. I'll go the other direction. And as they stood atop the mountain, the geography of the land, it was like mountains, 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 city. Mountains, 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 and desert, city. So Lot goes, hmm. And Lot says this. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. Okay, so the city that he ended up choosing, okay, was the city of Sodom. Okay, and you don't need to know too much about the Bible to know this isn't going to work out very good for him. And you see there's a little foreshadowing right there. And they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities in the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot did the opposite of Abraham. Abraham said, I'll let God choose for me. Lot said, I want that. And he chose for the wrong criteria. It was a city. It was industrial. It had fertile soil or whatever it was. Like It was the land of opportunity. But the problem was, as it says right there, it was also very sinful. And this is going to end up being a problem for him. Let's leave that. Okay, so Lot goes over there. Now we get to chapter 14. Abraham goes to his country. Lot is in his country. Abraham hears that there's trouble brewing in Sodom. Another king, actually a set of kings, decide to invade Sodom. And they attack the city of Sodom and they capture all the people over there, including Lot. Lot is taken prisoner by the bad guys. Abraham hears about this and Abraham responds, as you see right here. Now we're in chapter 14. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and, all the, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. This is a crazy story. Somehow Abraham, like the shepherd Abraham, all of a sudden turns out to be like some military genius slash ninja guy. So all of a sudden he hears that Lot has been attacked by five kings, attacked and they captured. So all of a sudden Abraham just like, I don't even know how, like where did he get the training? Where did he get the weapons? We don't know, but like what I wanna say, again, this is not our main point, so I'm just gonna say and kind of move on, is I don't really know where he got this from, but I'm gonna say blessing of God. And I'm, I'm content with that kind of an answer. And I'm gonna say that the blessing of God is more valuable than anything else in this world. And that Abraham realized from this little episode, and I hope we realize this as well, that if you have blessing of God on one hand and everything the world has to offer on the other, you never, ever, ever go from the blessing of God. The blessing of God is worth more than everything else that you can have. So when a couple tells me, for example, you know, we're happy and wherever, this and that. And then they, you know, we started to mess around with this. But, you know, what's the big deal? Look, 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 look. Blessing of God, more valuable than millions of dollars. Don't lose it. Don't ever lose the blessing of God in your relationship. Don't lose the blessing of God in your career. Don't lose the blessing of God in your home. That's worth more than anything else in this whole wide world. That's what Abraham shows us. He didn't have the military training. He didn't have the army. He didn't have the weapons. He had blessing of God. And he whipped these military people and took them down. That's chapter 13 and 14. Now let's get to chapter 15 and we're gonna go slow now. So again, Abraham separated from Lot, heard he was in trouble, went and saved him. Now we pick up the story. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse one. 
After these things. That's an important phrase. After these things. After what things? After Abraham just got this great military victory. After Abraham just had a great military victory. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Why did God say that? Why would God, like Abraham is on cloud nine. And God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Did you see me be afraid? Did you see what I just did to those, that funny army? And God says to him, don't worry, Abraham, I'm your reward. Why does God come to Abraham on the day of victory and tell him this and encourage him when he doesn't seem like he needs encouragement? Well, this is the answer to the question of why you should never leave your home any day without reading the Bible and saying your prayers. Any day is answered by this. Why God said this to Abraham. We don't see Abraham as being in a moment of weakness, but God, who is always sees what cannot be seen, knew that Abraham was about to have a struggle. And we're going to see that in the next verse. But Abraham didn't know it before. So Abraham would have got up this day and, you know, just left for work. And then he would have faced the struggle and been like, God, where are you? And the answer would have been that I was there in the morning and I was ready to give you the encouragement that I knew you needed at lunchtime, but because you left the house, you'd have felt all by yourself. See how God works? This is give us this day our daily bread. God gives us before we need it, exactly what we need, we don't even need it. Verse two, Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. You see what's happening with Abraham? Abraham's feeling kind of down. Why would he feel down after the great victory? You ever been in that position where you feel like, okay, God promised me something. And I did my part. And I did more than my part. Like God, you said, leave, I left. God, you said, get rid of terror, I got rid of terror. God, you said, let Lot choose. I let Lot choose. I even helped Lot when he made a dumb choice. Like I did, and I did, and I did, and I did, and I did. And then I come back and sit in my house. What has God done? Like God promised me children upon children upon children upon children. Where are they? I don't have one. And he started to feel down. And we get this. Okay, we get this because we all know what it feels like to feel like I'm doing my part and God hasn't done his part. We all know what that feels like. And that's how Abraham feels right now. Also keep in mind, Old Testament, they didn't understand, like we say blessing of God and we think eternity. They didn't understand eternity the way we do. They don't understand kingdom of heaven the way we do. Their eternal life was in their children. That's what their life was. So Abraham's inheritance was his children. So what Abraham sees is, I'm doing and I'm serving and I'm struggling and I'm everything and I, and I got no inheritance and I got no blessing from God. So what Abraham basically says in this verse is, remember me? Remember me, God? Hello? Remember me? And Abraham probably, like if he's me and you, God says to Abraham, you're going to have many children. So Abraham probably thinks, okay, how many? Ten? Eight? 
Like how many, God, like how many kids am I gonna have? And Abraham probably thought he was like 75, let's say, when he first got the promise. You know, 75, uh, Sarah's, you know, 65. So if we got, you know, one every couple years, there'll be two years space. That's like perfect for school. Like it's perfect, you know. So probably have like 10, you know, or maybe, you know, like 11 or 12. But now Abraham's like 90. So Abraham's doing the math. Like, okay, God, like, like I ain't getting any younger. And Sarah, like we got the biological clock is ticking away. Like it's, you know, it's in like that red zone now for Sarah. Like, so Abraham's doing the math. Like even God, if I did have a kid now, like how many possibly gonna have? God responds. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. God answers Abraham by saying, stop your foolish talking. That's not true. And then he gives him a homework assignment. And I want you to notice two things about the homework assignment. What he asked him to do and where he asked him to do it. First thing is the where. He says, I need you to leave your tent. I need you to go where? Outside. And then your homework assignment is what? Look towards the heaven and count the stars. One, two, three. like Abraham's obedient. Five, six, oh, wait, I can't know. One, two. Like how long do you think it could have taken Abraham to do this? It probably took Abraham all night and a very frustrating and, you know, trying to remember and, you know, no one make any numbers. Like Abraham's doing this, doing this. And I would imagine Abraham stood all night out there until finally the sun came up and he couldn't see the stars. And Abraham was frustrated and saying, God, I can't, I can't figure it out. And at that point in time, God said, now you learn the lesson. And he said to him, God said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. I don't know about you. I love to look at the stars at night whenever I'm out in some place away from the lights here where you can see it. There's just something that's just like, like I've always wanted to be one of those guys who could be like, you know, there's, you know, the Little Dipper and the Big Dipper and, you know, Jack, the cowboy, or like whatever it is, you know. Like I've always wanted to be that guy who could like name the stuff, okay? And I, you know, you make up the, whatever it may be, like I always wanted to be that guy because there's something, when you look at the stars, there's just so many of them. Anyone want to guess how many stars there are in the visible universe? The visible universe, okay? The scientists say there's like 100 billion galaxies. Let me see. Yeah, 100 billion galaxies, 10% of which are visible. I don't know how visible. I don't know what kind of special glass you need to see these, but you can apparently visible 10 billion galaxies. So that's only 10% of the 100 billion. In the 10 billion galaxies, anyone want to guess how many stars there are in the visible universe? Anyone? Scientists say that there's an average of 100 billion stars per galaxy. 100 billion stars per galaxy, 10 billion galaxies are visible. Do the math, okay, you math wizards. That's 1 billion trillion stars. That's a one with 21 zeros after it, and that's the only in the 10% of the visible universe. And God says, he counts the number of stars. He calls them all by name. How do you even come up with that many names? 
Like, that's the real miracle, is not to count them, but to come up with that many names. But that's God. One billion trillion? Easy. That's just what you all have discovered. That's what you guys on this planet, that's the only thing that you discovered. Oh, yeah, the first hundred billion trillion. Yeah. That's like, you know, like the, the guinea pigs stars. Lesson for Abraham, lesson for us today is this. Never allow finite thinking to limit an infinite God. Never allow finite thinking to limit an infinite God. Never allow finite human thinking to limit an infinite, eternal God. That's what Abraham's lesson was. Abraham thinking, am I going to have two kids, three kids, or four, or one? Like, how many could I possibly have? And God's like, Abraham, come outside. Look. Expand your view. Never allow finite thinking to limit an infinite God. Don't tell me how old you are. Don't tell me how old Sarah is. Don't tell me how illogical. Just look up. And once you see the bigness of God, changes your perspective on your situation. If there's one thing that I think limits the people of God today, that removes the blessing of God from our lives, that stops us from reaching our potential and what good God wants to do in our life, it's exactly this lesson. It's limiting God to human, finite, logical thinking. Now, I'm a very logical person. I'm not an emotion. I'm a logical person. But you never limit God to what your logic says he can do. I went to the University of Virginia, okay, when I was back in college. And at the University of Virginia, it was founded by Thomas Jefferson. If you go to University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, they quote Thomas Jefferson the way we quote Jesus. So it'd be like, Thomas Jefferson said you should love your enemies. I'm like, no, he didn't, okay? He ripped that off, okay, but that's fine. Like Thomas Jefferson for them is God. And there's statues and sayings of Thomas Jefferson, all this kind of stuff. Thomas Jefferson loved the teachings of Jesus. But Thomas Jefferson was also a child of the enlightenment. You know what enlightenment means? Enlightenment people means people who think they're really smart, okay? Trying to look smart, but actually showing that they're not that smart at all. Because these people in the enlightenment thought they were so smart, and therefore, if something didn't make sense to them, it clearly is false. That's what they thought. And that's what Thomas Jefferson thought. I'm the smartest guy, so therefore, if I can't explain it, it's unexplainable, it's not true. Okay, you see this actually all over the world today as well. Okay, just go on the social media and you see it. If something doesn't make sense to me, it can't be true. So Thomas Jefferson, what he did, loved the teachings of Jesus. Didn't care for the miracles, couldn't get it. So he physically took a pair of scissors and cut them out of the Bible. Virgin birth? No, virgins don't have babies. Cut that part out. Resurrection? Get that out of here. Water, wine? Uh-uh, can't explain that. Teachings on love and forgiveness? Yeah, absolutely. But any kind of miracle or divine or unexplainable, he cut it out literally. And the result of it is what was published called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, more, known more commonly today as the Jefferson Bible. You can go get it online. It's the Jefferson Bible. It's the same Bible without the divine stuff, the miracle stuff. You sit there and say, man, what, who in the right mind would cut stuff out of the Bible? We're offended by that, but I'm telling you, we do the same thing. We just don't use scissors. We do the same thing because we see the miracles of God and we hear about the miracles and we're like, those are a thing of the past. Hey, you should pray. Prayer works. I tried prayer, Father Anthony, doesn't work. No, so-and-so can change. Like, they can change. No, no, Father Anthony, I tried there, I can't change. 
No, with God, all things are possible. Give it another try. Come on, believe. It's never too late. Never too old, never too young, never too lost. Not enough, Father Anthony, come on. That stuff is, that's the, that's the stuff we teach the children, but that's not reality. Reality is the stuff we can explain, the stuff we can understand. Isaiah the prophet says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let me tell you what is incredible. The bigness of God is incredible. All the stars holds them in his hand. Can tell you the exact number of grains of sand on the seashore. Thank you. Can tell you the number of blades of grass in your yard. Can tell you the number of hairs on your head. The bigness of God is incredible. But you know what's also incredible? That the bigness doesn't negate his smallness. That the same God who holds the universe in the palm of his hands, who keeps the planets from colliding, is the same God who can hear the prayer of a little fifth grader for his math test on Monday. The same God who controls everything that there is, and like I said, the number of stars, is the same God who sees one tear fall from your face, and that one tear doesn't go unnoticed in God's eyes. That's the bigness of God. And the smallness of God, that's the incredibleness of God. But as big as God is, the problem that I see today, like I said, is God's bigness gets a little bit smaller every day. You know why it gets smaller every day? Because God created man in his image, okay? We were created in the image of God. But unfortunately, what man has been doing ever since then, which we do on a daily basis, is we create God in our image. And we lessen God. And we make God smaller. And all of a sudden, the one who holds the planets in his hand can't solve my problem at home. And all of a sudden, the one who turned water into wine can't change my situation at work or my marriage or can't provide when I trust in him or can't answer. And all of a sudden, our picture of God becomes small. To me, that's the greatest problem in the church today. The greatest problem in the church today is that God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until we end up with a little pocket-sized Jesus that we can stick in our pocket and we bring him out when we want him to bless us Okay, and we put them back in our pocket when it's time to get to the real work. And the reason why we do that, because unlike Abraham, we need more gazing at stars and less staring at ceilings. We need to stand outside more and gaze at the stars or stand inside and stare at the ceilings. What I mean by that is we need to spend more time focusing on what could be and less time focusing on what isn't. We need to spend more time focusing on what God could do, and I understand he hasn't done it, but more time focused on what might God do, as opposed to focusing on what God has not yet done. Yeah, there's limits and there's ceilings. Yeah, absolutely. But there's also stars, and you choose which one in your life you're gonna spend more time talking about and thinking about and complaining about and whining about, and your whole life is focused on what God has not done, or you're gonna go outside like Abraham and say, God, I know you haven't done yet, but man, when I look at what you have done, and when I look at what the possibilities are, let's go. Who sets the rules for God in your life? Who defines what God is gonna do in your life? Is it God or is it your logic? Who defines what is possible in your life? Everyone needs to answer this question. Who defines what is possible in your life? 
God and his word or your logic and the limits that you see? Let's go back to the story. Verse 8. Abraham does the star thing, counts them all. Then he says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now, it's easy to look at this and say, Abraham is doubting God. I don't think Abraham is doubting God. I think this, how shall I know it, reminds me of a similar verse in Luke chapter 1, when an angel came to a virgin in Nazareth and said, you're going to bear the son of God. And she said, okay, I'm in. But how, since I do not know a man. So Abraham is not doubting God, but he's saying, God, how will I know this? And just like with, with, with Virgin Mary, God doesn't give an explanation. He just says, I'm God. I got this covered. Look what happens next. Verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. This is kind of weird if you don't understand Old Testament ritual, but this was basically the making of a contract. The way you would make a contract, like the way right now you buy a house, they take your, 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 your money and, your, and, your, and they, whatever collateral it may be. The way they did in the Old Testament was they got these animals or whatever it was, and then they created like a pathway. And they cut the bird in half, half here, half here. And then they cut the ram in half, half here, half here. Then the goat, half here, half here. And then what they would do is they would walk down that aisle together. And the implication is if anyone breaks the covenant, what will happen to them? They will be like the goat cut in half. Okay, that's like the implication. Okay, kind of like the, you know, uh, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye kind of a thing. Okay, that's what they're saying. It's like, cross my heart, hope to die, and if I don't do it, you know, you cut me in half and slice me open like these guys right here. So that's what God tells Abraham to do. So again, how will I know this? And God says, we're going to make a covenant together. Verse 11. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, pause. When the vultures came down on the carcasses, that's not what I was expecting to read. God says, cut the things. Abraham cuts it and cuts it. And then he's waiting for God. Okay, we're going to walk down there. And the next thing we read is there's vultures. What does that imply between the last verse and this verse? If a dog dies in the street or a squirrel dies in the street, the vultures are what you see like the next day. Not like the squirrel gets hit and the vultures are right there just waiting on top of it. The fact that vultures are there means Abraham cut the thing open and he's like, okay. And all of a sudden, he waited. He waited. He waited. And then the vultures came. And Abraham drove them away. Now the sun was going down. This is started in the early morning. So Abraham started, let's make up a time, 8 o'clock in the morning. Now the sun's going down. So he waited till 9, 10, 11, 12. Here come the vultures. Get those things away. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, more vultures. Get those things away. 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, vultures. And if it's me, I'm like, that's it. Like, I'm an idiot. God's not going to come through. The whole point was God to say, look, 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 look. And again, God left me. And I'm going to go childless. And you can imagine the warfare in his brain. And the sun was going down. And a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. I don't have any idea what this horror and great darkness is, but I do know that when you're waiting on God, waiting on God, waiting on God, what starts to set in? The darkness of despair. The darkness of, oh no, I've messed up. The darkness of, oh no, God is never going to come through for me. You know that despair, that darkness, the vultures, this is, a, this is a waste of time? That's what's happening right here. But 
we'll skip ahead right here. Okay, we'll go to verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down, mean completely dark, and it was dark that behold, there, was an appear, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And we'll stop the story right there. What happened? The sun went down completely dark and then a fire appeared and walked through there. And the fire obviously is representing, that's God's presence, okay? So God walked through. What's interesting about the way God made that covenant with Abram? What did I tell you was supposed to happen? Cut the things and then who's supposed to walk down the middle? Both of them. But did Abraham walk down the middle? Only God, why? What is God saying? This is a one-man covenant. God said to Abraham, I'm going to do my part. And if I don't do my part, you cut me open. Obviously, God's going to do his part. But he didn't make Abraham walk through. Because God's covenant, back to last week, is not based on what we do. It's based on who he is. And God made a one-man covenant with Abraham right here. Now, the important part for us to notice here is that when God makes this covenant, he let Abraham wait. And he let it get dark. And he let the despair set in. Why? Because the answer to our trials in life is not the removal of the trial, but is God's presence and covenant and power in the middle of the trial. Like God didn't solve Daniel's problem in the lion's den by getting him out of the lion's den. He solved the problem by standing next to him in the lion's den. And God didn't solve Abraham's problem with despair by, by getting rid of the darkness and making it light. He let him be in the darkness. And then he came and stood next to him in the darkness and was a fire for him in the middle of that darkness. I love this passage. St. Paul describes what Abraham did here in, in Genesis 15. He describes this in Romans 4. That Abraham, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced, love that word, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Here's what I believe in life. I believe that the people who God works the most in their life, you want God to work in your life. The people who God works the most in their life are the people who make the fewest assumptions about what is and what is not possible with God. The people that God works the most in their life are the people who have the fewest assumptions of what can and cannot happen. Virgin Mary did not allow the assumption of virgins can't have babies. She didn't believe in that assumption. God worked mightily in her life. Moses didn't go with the assumption that you had to go over the water. Moses thought, hey, let's go through the water. Peter didn't think that you needed a boat to walk on water. And Abraham didn't think that you had to be under age 40 to have a baby or 50 or 60. And Abraham didn't go with the assumption that 90 year olds can't have babies because Abraham got it. That when God is in the story, when God is in the story, when God is in your story, the one who changed water into wine, the one who fed 5,000 five loaves and two fish, the one who opened the eyes of the blind, the one who parted the sea, the one who rose from the dead on the third day. When God is in your story, the one who did all those things is in your story. So therefore, we will not be limited 
by what logic tells us is possible, not possible. We will not fall victim to the assumptions of human thinking. What I say about God and faith in God, faith is not against logic. Faith is above logic. Faith doesn't ignore reality. That's what that verse said. Abraham didn't think like, oh, he didn't all of a sudden think, oh, I'm only 30 years old now. I believe I'm only 30 years old. No, Abraham understood. And he knew the deadness of his body and the deadness of Sarah's body. But faith doesn't limit itself to logic. So for you, have you ever limited the work of God by your logic? I'm too old. Too old? Okay, let's think about that. Moses, God worked in his life when he was in his 80s. Noah was in his 500s when he started God's, God started his work in his life. So if you're under 500, okay, you still got a shot. How about I'm too young? David was just a teenager when he faced a giant named Goliath. And everyone said he's too young, but David knew no such thing as too young with God. Virgin Mary, also a teenager when she bore the son of God. There was a king in the Old Testament named Josiah. And you know how old he was when he became king? Eight. Eight years old when he became king. No such thing as too young in God's eyes. How about I'm not qualified enough? I'm not good enough. I'm too bad. Jesus took 12 not qualified people, the disciples, and turned the world upside down through them. And my experience says, take it for what it's worth, my experience says that the greatest work that God does is not in people who think they're qualified, but actually the greatest work that God does will be a work that you are completely unprepared and don't think you're ready for in the least way. I look back at my life and I say everything that happened to me in my life, I was completely unprepared. I was unprepared when I got married. I was unprepared when I had kids. Unprepared when I became a priest. Unprepared for the dog. Like everything in my life. <laughs> Anything good that's ever come to me in my life, I was not prepared for it, nor was I qualified. But God loves to use us when we think that we're not usable. So I'll say it this way. Where are you going to go with logic or faith? Logic questions God. Faith questions logic. I'm not against logic. I'm not saying we should all run out of here willy-nilly and just wee. I'm not saying like that. I'm saying there's logic. Logic is 90-year-old people don't have babies. Logic is logic. But faith says, hmm. See, logic says, why does God say that? Faith says, hmm. I don't question God, I question the logic. Because if God is in the story, the one who numbers the stars and calls them all by name, if he's in the story, I will not allow my logic to limit, not again, not an illogical God, I'm not saying God is illogical, God is above logic. I will not allow my finite thinking to limit an infinite God. God is our father, and for those who are dads in the room, fathers, nothing makes fathers happier than providing for their children. Nothing, like it's something innate inside dads that we want our kids to think we're superheroes. I love it when my kids, something would break in the house or something would go wrong and my kids would say, don't worry, dad can fix it. Dad can fix it. When dad comes home, dad's gonna fix it. I love that. So much so that things would break and I'd be like, don't worry, I can handle it, kids. And they go to school and I hire someone to come and fix it. And that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine, okay? I love the fact that my children think I'm a superhero. But you know what? I think that piece of a father's heart comes from the father's heart. I think God, who actually is a superhero, like I'm not, I'm pretending, but God actually is a superhero. God really can fix everything. God really is never painted in a corner. God never really runs out of options in your life. God really can solve every problem. 
I think nothing honors God, the Father, more than when we say, you're my Father. I don't know what I'm doing, but as long as you're in the picture, I'm, I'll be okay. And when our thinking starts to get limited by logic, when our thinking starts to get limited by logic, and we start to see limitations and ceilings, then we need to go outside. And we need to stand in front of the stars, and just like Abraham, one, two, and you keep counting, you keep counting, you keep counting, and then all of a sudden you go back and you realize that there's no way that my finite thinking, that my logic, no matter how smart I may be, can limit an infinite God. Last verse, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him. This may be your gazing at the star, memorizing a verse like this, reading it when you're, like this may be your stargazing right here in case you don't live under the stars. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's a great memory verse. That's one that when you're struggling and that's one when you feel hopeless and you feel limitations and you feel and you feel and you feel and you feel. You say Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power works in us. Can we say that together? That's an important. Let's read that together, all together. One, two, three. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. You got to say exceedingly, abundantly like you mean it. Again, now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Nothing honors God's heart more than when our heart looks at him with eyes of awe and wonder and amazement and possibility. Nothing honors God more than when his children do that. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are an infinite God and you choose to work in our finite lives in ways that are beyond our logic or our understanding we'll ever catch up with. I pray, God, that you would expand our faith today, like that you wouldn't allow our, our limited thinking to set limits on what you can do in our life and in the world. Give us, like Abraham, Lord, like an expanded view, a big view of you, and that we would leave, Lord, today with a, a renewed faith that with God, nothing is impossible. And if God said it, then he, you remain faithful, Lord, even if we are faithless. And no limits that we can think up or no limits and mistakes that we can do, Lord, can stop your work in our life. And for that, we praise you and we honor you and we thank you. And we pray, Lord, that you would make your picture bigger in our eyes every single day. We ask these things in the mighty name of your Son, with the intercessions of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.